this morning, turn to Acts chapter 8. We've uh, started the summer uh, going through Acts. Um, we uh, spent a few weeks looking at our identities uh, as family, as servants, and as missionaries. And then lastly, last week, kind of pushing us back into, I think it's been like one of those moments where God's like just working this just right where I think we're at, is that as we walked out of this season of looking at the first uh, seven chapters of Acts, we see uh, God birthing his church uh, out of men and women who were following after Jesus, who were uh, called to pray, called to wait on the Lord, and then the Spirit came and filled them, and as the Spirit met them in the upper room, uh, led them into worship and praise and led them into this world around them uh, in a dramatic way. They were ordinary people, so ordinary, again, that when amazing things began to be done through them, right? As we look through the early chapters of Acts, they're going, these are just ordinary people. How are they speaking in all these different dialects? How are they doing this amazing thing that's going on in front of us? Uh, and the amazing thing they were beginning to do was just proclaiming the good news of Jesus, right? To the same city that just uh, a month and a half before this time uh, had praised Jesus as he walked in and then yelled, crucify him. Uh, and then most had probably forgotten about and just thought this was another guy who tried to claim to be God who wasn't. Yet these men and women were uh, filled with this Holy Spirit, speaking this good news, and then living it out, right? Living out this call to be followers of Jesus by committing themselves to live out the teachings of the apostles. I love that picture of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because when we hear that, we think they just devoted themselves to getting together and listening to people talk to them. Uh, and the, uh, the reality of those days is that meant them getting in groups of between maybe 10 to maybe as many as 50, but that was it. So there's no way that they were all committed to like just being in gatherings together because that would mean just gatherings all over the place all the time, right? It was both that happening, but when they heard the teaching, they were devoted to living it out, to being committed to the teaching, to hearing the word and then taking it and doing something with it. They would impact their lives. They were committed to sharing meals together, to fellowshipping with one another, and to prayer. Those are the four things that they were known for as little Christians, as little Christ, followers of Jesus, right? That's what they looked like as they went out. And then the other thing they were, I would say they were known for was boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus, even in the face of opposition, right? Uh, they had the Pharisees and Sadducees everywhere they went trying to call them out, and, but yet the good works that God was doing through them uh, was overwhelming the crowd so much that, again, in the midst of that, even though they were imprisoned, thousands of people were still coming to faith over and over again, right? And what was happening was uh, said multiple times throughout Scripture, day by day, God was adding to their numbers those who were coming to faith, who were believing. Right? So as we get through towards the end of that, we see both the, the complexities of growth and the church, which is um, lots of people coming, lots of need happening. How do we meet all those needs? We need, we need some leadership. We need some structure to this. We need deacons who will oversee this so that the apostles can teach, the deacons can serve. We have this opportunity again to continue in this. Uh, and then out of that deacon group, uh, a man named Stephen comes uh, out and others led out of this saying, hey, we're, we're really trying to live our lives on fire for the gospel. Stephen now proclaiming this good news to others uh, infuriates those around him uh, so much so that they, they kill him. They martyr him 
he dies because of his belief in Jesus, right? So that's where we left off, is Stephen's martyrdom. Um, imagining the impact that would have on those following Jesus at the time. And this was over the course of now, uh, from the beginning to this point, almost two years. So we're seeing the faith of these believers grow, and now the stoning of Stephen is where we left off. And then we, we come back and we add into that our identities, right? That was basically what was being taught to them, all their discipleship was, how do you follow Jesus? What does it look like? Your family, your servants, your missionaries, you're going on that. You're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like to live that out. And so we know the other promise of that that Jesus gave uh, in the Gospels and in the beginning of Acts was that he was going to send them out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? The Great Commission and the Gospels, this, this promise in the first part of Acts is ascending. You're missionaries now. You're going to go out and go forward. I love this quote from uh, Brad Briscoe re reminding me of this, right? The nature and essence of the church is rooted in the missionary nature of God. In other words, if God is a missionary God, then we as his people are missionary people, right? Like that's what we've just been talking about. And the same thing, if God is our father, then that means we are his children. If Jesus is our king, that means we are his servants. You can take those to each one of those, right? So therefore, the, the picture of this and this missionary people, the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. We are the missionaries. Just as Kevin said, like, we, we are not a building, although we'd be some strange buildings, right? We are a missionary people. We are sent one, sent out. And so with this identity, as Stephen Stonings happens, and then we jump into chapter 8, and over the next few weeks, we'll look at chapter 8 through chapter 12, kind of this middle section of this early uh, church and what goes on in that, what happens after Stephen Stoning. What we see in that is uh, something, uh, I love the, the Bible Project's uh, wording is always very intentional. And they have a, a, a recap of ver uh, chapters 8 through 12, and it starts off by saying this, this grassroots countercultural movement, that's the description of the church, was born. Right? Because when we say the church, we have all the connotation and baggage that come with that, right? It's the steeple, right? Here's the church, here's the steeple, we'll open up here all the people. We have those kind of things that we've grown up with. We have these imagery of the church. Not often is the church not, not the picture like we see behind us of us as people. We see it as things rather than understanding that. So I love this definition of it, a countercultural movement, a grassroots. It, it's not some you know, amazing thing with all these guys, men and women that are, have it all figured out. It's people working together. Think of something that's grassroots. Like, we're just trying to figure this out together and how are we gonna make this work? What is this gonna look like when we go out on this together? But I love the other picture of that, the counter-cultural movement. And I'll be honest, I think too often the church, and I'll say specifically the American church, doesn't see this as the countercultural movement or doesn't even fully understand what it means to be a countercultural movement. This isn't a political movement, right? That's what we see a lot of what's going on in our culture today. You're on one side or the other, right? The countercultural movement is we are on neither side. 
We're on Jesus' side, which is neither of them. Neither of them have the ownership of Jesus' way, right? We, we've talked about this in the past. as like a third way, another different way. This is countercultural. So when we begin to go along, and believers, this might be a great reminder to us, when we're going along and we're fitting in fine in the culture, something is wrong. Because Jesus' movement has never been the culture. And when it is, it often goes bad because what happens? We begin to take it over and we begin to like, make it about us and no longer about Jesus. We make it about us and no longer about God. We make it about us and no longer need the Holy Spirit. And so I love this definition of the church or this picture of the church. It said it started among Jewish people who have been scattered all over the world, but no matter where they lived or where they would go, they kept their identity as the family of Abraham, devoted to one true God. I love that picture that that's what the church is looking like even today, that we are one family united no matter where we are. Here today, in Korea, in um, Slovakia, wherever we are today, we are united in Christ. And Jesus told this group to be filled with the Spirit. And as we talked about and saw this um, looking backwards, we jump into chapter 8 today, all right, and, and come into this place like what is happening uh, following Stephen Stoning? What, what goes on in their lives? So there's thousands now in this countercultural movement. Imagine what that looks like. It's not just a few people trying to live a different way. It's a lot of people and it's making impact. And that's why you see this drastic response to it. That's why you see the, the Pharisees so mad at Stephen. Because what he's calling people to do is out of the way of the norm that everyone else is used to, what everyone else is doing. So what Jesus was calling to is to, um, as not just a, a way to get into heaven, as many of us, I grew up with that, right? Like, ha, like following Jesus was my ticket to heaven. It really didn't change my day-to-day -day life. And, and what we're seeing in this early church is it absolutely defined all of who they were, even how they were living that day. It wasn't just my ticket to heaven. It changed how they lived. And it led to difficulties in this new family. It led to difficulties in the world around us, right? And this is that picture of what we're called to live. This uh, countercultural movement is an incarnational life where just as Jesus came to live among us, we are called to live counterculturally among the world around us. So it's not to be a silo or isolation, right? We're not to turn into, I know we, we joked about it in the early days when we love just having our family meals. We're like, we'll just go buy a piece of land and go live out there and that'll be all great. And look, we all have our different roles and how, how, how funny would that be, right? It sounds neat. And there's some part of that would be absolutely amazing, but it's not at all what the gospel calls us to. In fact, it says, as you go, as you're living this out, go live in a way that, that is different just as Jesus did. So we end with Stephen's martyrdom and we pick up on Acts chapter 8. We'll look in verses 1 through 3 to start. Chapter 8. I don't know if I had the title of the section or the actual verse. Here we go. And Saul approved his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So immediately following Stephen's stoning, what begins to happen is a persecution comes upon the church, right? A suffering. And, and I want to spend a lot of time in the difference of these two, but there is suffering. Jesus says, when you follow him, there'll be suffering, right? We will suffer for his sake. Why? Because he suffered. That suffering oftentimes in the church is persecution. And I think we would all admit we have not seen persecution even remotely close to what's going on in the early church. Right? We, we ourselves. Like we might have heard of it or seen it in other places or, or read about it in the news. But actually experiencing persecution to the way that they could no longer live where they lived anymore. They had to move out of the neighborhood they were in because it was no longer safe for them to be there. Or they were literally pushed out. They were exiled out of their family, said, you have to leave here. You can't be here anymore and had to go be foreigners someplace else. This is very different than the exiles of Israel in the past, right? In the past, we see Israel exiled because they have not followed the way of God. And this is a kind of a, not a punishment, but a consequence of their not following Jesus. I mean, not following God. Here, they are following Jesus, but yet it's leading them to have to leave the places that they know. Which seems like the opposite, right? Not many of those thousands of people really ex might be excited about that if you had told them on the beginning, hey, follow after Jesus, and this is what that looks like. But they are doing that. They're doing it because they have to for their survival, to be able to um, even exist because they're cut off from everything where they live. So every's li everyone's life is turned upside down, right? They're forced to leave their homes, jobs, and families. Their lives are radically altered, and some of them are even imprisoned because of this. Right? So if we were putting together our track, you know, to pass out uh, through Jerusalem in the days, and say, come follow Jesus, right? This is what's going to happen to you. I don't know how many people are signing up for that. If we were to pass it out for us and say, hey, this is what it's going to look like for you to follow Jesus today, and this is what it really means, that you will have to die to yourself daily, lose all that you have and all that you think, all that you've been working towards in order to follow him. Are you still good with that? And it might be easy to say in here, but the reality that is a cost that I don't know that we often want to claim, that we'd often want to recognize. That you might even end up in jail or on the run if you were to believe in Jesus. As I said earlier, Proclaiming the good news of Jesus in all of our life, following him in all of our life is not just a get out of jail free card or a ticket to heaven. God wants your life now, not just your afterlife. And he's saying that might come at the expense of persecution, right? So thousands now face this dilemma. And I imagine the doubt, the fear and anxiety that are creeping in with the realities, I cannot be here anymore. If I stay here, I'm going to prison. If I go to prison, again, it just talks about the men and women go to prison. What happens to those children? So for fear of their families, here they are trying to take care of that. I want you to hear two of the apostles, both Peter, we already know of through here, and Paul, who we'll meet here next week as Saul. 
their response to what they talk about suffering and persecution. Peter says this later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. He says, For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, uh, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Hear that, right? Again, think of that as the punishment in the past. Israel, Israel has gone against God. They're, you know, the response to that or the consequence of that is you're out on your own. Sorry, you're going to deal with this exile, this overcoming. But what if you do good and suffer, right? Verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called. This is our calling. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And he was reviled, but he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Right? He's, he recognized who's ultimately in control. The one who judges justly is God, his heavenly father. It is not the world around us, right? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your souls. This is Peter's picture of what that looked like, right? Peter stayed in Jerusalem. Said those other apostles, they stayed there. They're staying there. You think it was easy to stay there. There's not an easy answer out of this. No matter what goes on for them, they're facing persecution. Listen to uh, Paul out of Philippians chapter 1, how he describes what it might look like to suffer for Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit of one, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? He's saying, listen, I know things are going to be hard. I'm praying you're of one spirit and of one mind, and you're working together. Don't let this splinter you and divide you. He says, and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of, of their destruction, but of your salvation and from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He's saying, listen, it's going to happen. To follow after him means it's not all going to go easy. It's not going to all work out the way you thought it was, but he is still there with you. Like, in fact, he says it's a clear sign to them that you are following Jesus, is that you're staying strong even in the midst of this. Jesus himself even reminded his disciples of this before he left them. I love that this comes out of John chapter 15, uh, after talking about abiding in the vine, being in the vine and the branches, he reminds them of this in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world and the world loved, uh, would, uh, would love you of its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If I... If they kept my word, they, would, they will keep yours. But all of these things will do, uh, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not spoken to them, they would have been guilty of sin, but now they, do, uh, have, no, they have no excuse for their sin. He's basically saying, listen, you're in good company as this happens because they did this to me, they will do the same to you. 
He even said in Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who persecuted for the righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to hear this even out of the beginning of chapter 8, is that, listen, following after Jesus does not simply mean everybody's going to be happy that you're there to share about the good news of Jesus. Now, will we face persecution? Do I don't even know. There's honestly, I've, I've thought about this week. Should we be praying for persecution so that we might see the real faith of Jesus lived out in the world around us? That those who claim to follow Jesus, who claim Christianity, who claim faith in Jesus would, would be cast aside and the real faith would show up. There's also fear in that. What, would I stay strong in that? Would I stay there? Where would I find myself in that? You might ask yourself, why should we suffer? Why, why would God allow suffering? Why would that be a part? And I'll say the main and focal point of that is that it, it comes, an outcome of this is intimacy with Jesus. When you suffer with somebody or suffer like somebody, right? What kind of intimacy does that create between you and them? When you're walking along with someone who's hurting, who's broken, who's in need, it creates empathy, it creates reality, like I understand this better, I know this better, and it creates intimacy with them. So one of the outcomes of this is suffering in this for his sake means we receive intimacy with Jesus. We'll never likely know persecution like the early church did. Persecution that costs us everything, potentially even our own lives. But it's surely a way the Bible throughout history and that we see the gospel, uh, and throughout history we see the gospel spread when followers are willing to speak about Jesus, speak up about Jesus, and live set apart lives. That's, that is able to happen. And so, what, we're, what happens in the rest of chapter 8, and we're kind of going to do a real short overview of that, because the suffering is the, key, the focal beginning part of this, but that Luke highlights one of these guys. There's, it feels like there's like a ringing. I hear a ringing up here. It's like, I'm sorry, it's distracting me. If not, I don't know if anybody else is. Right there. Maybe a little hot. That sounds better. Thank you. I was like right, the high pitch right in my ear. Um, Especially if I was getting excited. I'm about to get really excited. So I was like, needed to, no. Luke's highlights one of these guys in, chat, in verses four through eight. Here the story of the beginning of Philip. So they, we just see them being scattered. They're, they've lost, they're losing all of what they've known. They're moving to these other lands where now they are the, um, they're the immigrant. They're the one coming in without anything. They're the ones in need. And it says in verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Like, they were scattered out. It didn't stop them doing what they knew had even caused them where they went, right? Their following Jesus ended them up where they were, but that didn't stop them from preaching the word. And one of those, verse, uh, chapter, or verse 5, Philip went down to the city of, uh, a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits uh, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city, right? 
So the response of these followers of Jesus scattered throughout, right? Dispersed about, ends up, um, they continue preaching the word Philip. He continues on. See, they're getting their missionary identity. In those two years, they're understanding this is who I am and what I'm supposed to do. Wherever I go, I'm going to keep doing it. It's not going to change whether I'm here, there, or anywhere. I'm going to keep doing this thing because it's who I am. And Philip went out into Samaria. What do we know about the Samaritans, right? Did the Jews like Samaritans? No. They thought they were the lowest of low people. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan, if you were at uh, our training last week, um, Matt did a great job of uh, helping us understand uh, the, the person on the side of the road. And, and the story of the Good Samaritan is really for us. It was just a Samaritan. Uh, we didn't know if he's good or not. He ended up being good, right? Um, but he was actually just the only good one in the story. The Samaritan is a picture of the Jews. Hey, listen. These people that you hate, they're actually maybe not the way you think they are. And so Philip goes to Samaria, a place that's basically seen as an enemy, and shares the good news. So much so that the crowds pay attention to what he said and what he did, to share and show. He shared the good news and he showed. He did things that made, brought the kingdom of God, right? We won't get into whether the Spirit's gifts and abilities are gone right now, because I don't believe they are. I think the Spirit can do in in our time today, what it did, what he did in this time, which is healing, uh, casting out spirits. I don't think that's crazy. I think we think it's crazy because we can't control and don't understand it. But many were freed from unclean spirits. What you might see with that, many were freed from slavery to sin, all types of sin, both spiritual things that were unseen and things that were seen. That's what was going on in there. I'm imagining there were addicts and uh, were there alcohol or drugs or all kinds of things that were healed and they thought something is happening through this guy's teaching. Lives are being radically changed by hearing the good news and believing in Jesus, right? So many are freed from unclean spirits. Many are actually healed from diseases and sickness. And then what happens in the city? Much joy. So these persecuted Christians going to another city where they do not belong, where they're not even wanted, are seeing the gospel heal people, free people, and bring joy. That's not what we think we think that's going to look like for us to go preach the gospel, right? So both things are happening. Because they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, they're hated. They're hated. So much so that they're willing to kill them, put them in prison. So they go out, they come to these new places. What happens? The gospel gets preached in these places. People are freed from uh, sin and unclean spirits. People are healed and much joy is there. They've lost their livelihood, their home, and their comfort. They're living in a strange land with strangers, but it doesn't hinder them, nor does it hinder God. He knew what was coming. When they share and show the goodness of Jesus in our suffering and persecution, people believe. It's in the midst of the suffering. People believe. Lives are changed. They are healed or freed from sin that so long entangles them and much joy. It's the kingdom of God that comes. We get to come and be a part of the kingdom of God showing up. That's what the kingdom of God looks like, right? When the kingdom of God shows up in a new place, people's lives are changed and much joy is there. The rest of chapter 8 then is Luke giving us two accounts of some of these salvations that happen through Philip. 
And again, I love that in this deal, we're getting the account out of the book of Acts, and it's like we get one little storyline. We see Stephen's storyline for a second, real short storyline in the, in, the, in, in the book. We see Philip's storyline right here. He comes up in the middle of this dispersion of them being cast out and sent out because of their belief, and we see him going in, lives change, and then we see kind of the result of that in two different areas. And I just want to take some overviews of that. There's no way. They, these each would be their own sermons to go through and talk through them. But what I want you to see in both, whether it's his interaction with Simon, who's the magician, right? He's known as Simon the Magician. And Simon the Magician is um, working in a power, out, like an unholy power, not from God, but from a God, little g God, they're called great. And so in that, um, he's seeing things happening, but he notices something different with Philip, right? I'll read it from this. He said, um, says, um, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, saying to himself, he was somebody great, right? <laughs> That's what he was saying. He's letting himself know, I'm somebody great. Uh, they all paid attention to him from the greatest to the least, saying that this man has the power of the God that is called great. And they, uh, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Right? So Philip going in there, what's amazing to this is Simon knows his magic, what's happening to him is nothing that he can do anything about. And in fact, he thinks it's about him, but it's really not. And he believes. I want you to hear this from both of these guys that come to faith in this story. And we even prayed it earlier uh, when Kevin led us in prayer. The people that God brings to faith are not always the people we think. Simon would not be the person you go after. Simon would not be the person that you think Jesus is going to save him. Why? Because it looks like he doesn't have any need, but he sees the gospel and his life is changed. That's the beauty of it. So much so, he begins to follow Philip wherever he goes. The, the next part of the story is that as he continues on, he sees that as the, as the apostles in Jerusalem hear about what's going on in Samaria, they come and they lay on hands of these new disciples and they pray for him, for them to receive the spirit. Simon sees this and he goes, I want that. Can I buy that? How do I get that? They didn't lay hands on me. How do I get that? And immediately Philip says, no, you can't do that. In fact, kind of rebukes him for a second. And, and it's funny, the, I've read different accounts of this. As we look at this, we can see the account as very harsh, like, no, Simon, you can't do it. Almost like, hey, we're even questioning, did Simon really believe on the other hand? It's really clear here. It said, even Simon himself believed. So he believed. I'm going to take it that he believed here. Not that he, they miswrote that he believed and he really didn't believe, but he believed. And then Philip is saying, hey, let me help you understand this, Simon. You can't buy God. It's about who you are. It's about your heart. You want the spirit? It's about your heart, not how much money you have. It's about dying to yourself, not making more of yourself. 
So he's discipling. Philip is discipling Simon even in the midst of this. And I love the picture of the end of this. It doesn't, it doesn't push him away. Instead, his response to it is he, he basically tells him, listen, you've got to, in verse 22, you've got to repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if it's possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven uh, you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in, in the bond of iniquity. So Paul, uh, Philip is seeing, listen, you're in sin right here, even though you believe. And then Simon's answer is this, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. What I believe even of that is it's saying, Simon continued on with Philip on this journey a new and restored life. And this is a picture of that discipleship. That we're willing to walk along with each other. If we're going to see God do dramatic things in people's lives, you know what's not going to happen? They're not going to come in and all of a sudden begin to live perfect lives. I remember I um, did a, an event as a youth pastor at a, a fifth quarter. And we did it at, uh, at Hayes High School outside of the gym. And we would have hundreds and hundreds of students come to it afterwards because the, the, the football field was right next to the gym. We'd do it outside of there. And so we would present the gospel each time. We'd have everybody come inside, present the gospel, four or 500 kids every time. We'd fill the gym up, present the gospel. Uh, and usually anywhere between 10 to 15 kids would come to faith and there's different youth pastors there uh, sharing the faith with them. And then we'd come back and counsel with as needed. There's this one guy who had been coming most of the season towards the end of the season. Uh, he was um, a really hard kind of looking guy. Like, as a, even as a teenager, I was like a little, like, unnerved by him. Like, like not comfortable, like, I felt like he could, wanted to punch me about every time he showed up. But he showed up every week, uh, and he comes down, and uh, at the end, after everything's over, he says, hey, I need to talk with you. And we began to talk, and I began, he's like, hey, what have you been talking about? Listen to this all, all, all season, and um, I think I want to give my life to him, but, like, I'm, I'm in gangs. I got all kinds, I don't know that I can do this. And so I was like, listen, God can free you through Jesus from anything. And so if you want to believe in him, he can walk with you through this. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not trying to give him the reality. And he's like, I want to do this. Um, and so we pray to receive Christ. I was like, listen, this is what you do. You confess to him your need. You pray and ask, and he will come meet you right here. And he's like, I want to do that right now. I was like, all right, let's do it right now. And we got done, and he let off after the prayer the most, like, filthy tirade of uh, expletives after coming to faith that I, could, I, I can't repeat any of it afterwards. But that was a fallen heart that had come to new life with no other way to know how to explain what just happened to him. I mean, you could see the transformation. And yes, he was saying words that most of us would cringe I, now and I would not even say in our presence today, but he was changed. And I think of the same thing when we see this. Sometimes we expect people to come to faith and then automatically have it all figured out and walk together, right? Many in this room have lived your whole life following after Jesus or being in the church so you understand even how to act. And so even this idea I love of Philip with Simon is saying like, hey, hey, that's not right. I can even see your heart. I, want, I, I care about you and want you to follow after him. That's discipleship, right? That's walking with people through life. So I want to encourage us, even like Simon, as we see this, that we see that God's power can change the life of even the one most crazy that we would not believe he could change. That's the picture of Simon. He goes on then, 
the next story of Philip's is, is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I love this. This is a picture of the reality that so he might use you to, to save the people we not, might not even think he would, and then he knows what's going on and will send us places we never expect to go. Right? So now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. Philip heard from the Lord and he went and followed what he said to do. He went and did it. So maybe for us, even just a piece of that is to just follow after wherever God is sending us. Right? And if you don't know where God's sending you, uh, boys, girls and teenagers in this room, like he's sending you to school every day. He's sending you to your neighborhood every day. He's sending you to work. He's sending you to these places already. Like, though you might not feel like, is he sending me? Yes, he is. If you are there, you're going there, you're being sent there, right? So then he rose and went, and, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all our treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Okay, so God's called him to a desert place in the middle of nowhere. He has no idea why he's going there. When he gets there, it's an Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, now what am I doing? This guy just happens to be reading from the scriptures. Go over and join the chariot. I still don't know what, I mean, there's all kind of conjecture about what this means. Is all of a sudden he giving him supernatural powers to run fast enough to keep up with the chariot? It's just a really slow chariot because he's trying to read. I have no idea. There's, you can go through all the depths of that, but it's intriguing that he's like, go catch up with him. Like, that seems like another thing. Like, I don't know how I can do that. I'm not going to be able to catch that. They're going to think I'm crazy, right? I'd be like, hey, there's a car driving down the road. They're, you need to talk to them right now. You need to start like running up to them. Hey, let me talk to you real quick. Like, no, they're going to go like speed up and go faster away from you. They're not going to slow down and go, hey, what would you look? Where do you, where do you, what do you need? So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Then he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Again, I would just wish there was a better picture of what this looked like. A video of this would be amazing. I, I hope it's not just as simple as they were as a chariot driving slow, but it's Philip running as fast as he possibly can going, do you need someone to help you? Like as Philip's like, I'm out here, spirit, I'll do whatever you want me to. But this is what happens. He meets him there. He shares with him this. And the eunuch said to Philip what he's reading, whom, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say about himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and began with scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? Also a miraculous thing if they're in the desert. Water's just showing up. God's perfect timing and place for us is not a coincidence. God has placed people in your life, in your neighborhood, on your street, uh, in your path each day. It's not a coincidence. Be aware. That's what we've been talking about, that God would open our eyes to what's already around us. That's what's happening for Philip. He's listening to the Spirit. He's obeying the Spirit. And God's putting him in a situation where he is already at work. What did Philip have to do here? He simply had to understand this is the good news of Jesus. Hear this good news of Jesus. And even in that, when you follow Jesus, you go get baptized and the Ethiopian eunuch goes, okay, let's go do that. Philip's not having to convince the guy to do this. He just shares the story with him and that's what happens. And the spirit of the Lord, <laughs> this was, so when they came upon the water, up out of the water, he baptized him. 
And this is a whole other part of the story which makes me believe that he made Philip run really fast. The next thing that happens is that after he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. He was there, and then he was no longer there anymore. He was in another place, Azotos. So imagine Philip, because I love how it says Philip found himself there. So it was like, I'm baptizing this one dude, and now I'm in a whole other place. I don't even know how this happened. And he passed through, and he preached the gospel to all the towns as he came to Caesarea. If this, if nothing else, this is reading a story that ought to make you just be curious and wonder, God, what are you doing here? You're doing crazy things. What are you doing here? How do you do this? But God gave Philip very clear things to do. Go to this area. Go to the chariot. God provided a chance to see the gospel expansion, right? God is at work. He happened to be reading Isaiah. He desired to be baptized following it. Hey, I want to change. In both of these stories, we see guys who you would not expect to find. Philip never thought, hey, let me put me in front of a, an Ethiopian eunuch somewhere. That will help me because what this is going to do, the Ethiopian eunuch is going to go back and take the gospel back to Ethiopia. Again, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Ethiopia is the ends of the earth. It's going to places he would never imagine. We see both of them desiring um, responses to faith, right? Baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit come with faith in Jesus Christ. So we're seeing this picture of these things being clearly talked about and understood and known. So the question today coming out of this for me as I look at it is, am I willing to live counterculturally for Jesus? Right? That's the beginning of this. That's the start of this all together. Am I willing to live against the grain counterculturally for Jesus? If it costs me everything, if it costs me my life, am I willing? Can I do that? The next question I ask myself is, am I praying, who am I praying for? When I saw this and I began to look at it, I began to think, God's putting me in places on a regular basis. Am I, are my eyes open each day to share the good news of Jesus? So I'm praying for those opportunities, and then I'm praying for the people that I already know and see that are around me, Right? And then the last thing is, am I sharing and showing, right? The, I love the picture, that definition that we talked about uh, with um, mission and evangelism. Are, am I being human and requiring a gospel explanation for the world around me, right? Imagine what it was like for those people living in Judea and Samaria to see these new Jewish believers coming into their place, living a life that is still different even amongst them, willing to do that because they knew they lost everything for Jesus. And so there they are. They're there being themselves, who God created them to be, still living out those Jewish traditions in the world around them, yet they're also sharing and showing the good news of the gospel. They're saying, this is what it's like to follow after Jesus. Come follow after Jesus with me. Like, that's the prayer I have for us. And that doesn't mean it happens when you get to be the old folks in the room. That happens even for you teenagers, that God can work this out in that life. And so my prayer for us today is to ask those questions and say, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to live counterculture for Jesus? Who am I praying for and willing to follow the Spirit for encouragement 
uh, to encourage and speak the good news? And am I sharing and showing my faith? So as we close today, that's my heart for us this, this morning. To think about this, this chapter 8, this transitioning even for the early church, right? To begin to understand that God is going after all kinds of people. We see next week in, in Saul's conversion, he can change anybody's life. It's going to be, it's a theme for today. It's a theme for next week. There's nobody's life that's too far from being changed, right? Because we might look at them and go, their, their, their life is so this way, and, and what Jesus is calling us to is this way. There's no way he can change it. Yes, he can. Simon's life was turned upside down by following him. I imagine the Ethiopian going back to Ethiopia to begin to share this good news was radically changed as well. So let's pray this morning. God, help us to live countercultural lives. Help us to share and show the goodness of Jesus. And would we be aware of the people you're putting in front of us each day? Father, I thank you for this morning, uh, for the realities and the truth of your gospel, that it is life-changing, life-altering. I pray this morning for each of us to live counterculturally for the sake of Jesus. Not so that we uh, can ruffle feathers, not so that we can be known as the instigator or the annoying believer, but so that the world around us would know there is another way. And the way of Jesus is counter to the things of this world. God, help us to have eyes to see where you are at work around us. That there is no one too far from your saving grace. God, empower us to share and show that good news of Jesus in all stages, in all areas of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.